Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster and it's certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, an absolute treat for you today. PMQ's Unpacked, we do every week. Obviously, we pause the action live from the House of Commons and analyse what's going on. Well, we've got a special historic PMQ's Unpacked today. Thanks to Kieran Hodgson, brilliant actor and impressionist, we are recreating a session of PMQ's from 50 years ago, back in 1972, when unemployment breached a million and all hell broke loose in the House of Commons. Ted Heath was at the dispatch box. The Labour Party made so much noise that they had to suspend PMQs. We recreate the whole thing with Patrick Maguire. And then we'll hear from Lord Howell, who was a government minister, employment minister, in Heath's government. He'll tell us just why it was so free-brown. Any lessons for today? Really fascinating episode coming up. Uh, Before that, as ever, we kick off with this. The Columnists on Times Radio. Yes, it's that time of the morning where we speak to two of our favourite columnists. We've got Times Columnist Melanie Reid. Morning, Melanie. Morning, Matt. Nice to have you with us. No James Forsyth today, so playing the part of James Forsyth. Uh, John Stevens, the person going to the Daily Mirror. Morning, John. Hi, morning, Matt. Nice that John's come into the studio. It's nice, nice to see you. Uh, let's start, first of all, uh, with the nurses' strike. Went ahead in England yesterday. You've been spared it in Scotland, Melanie, but uh, Rishi Sunak has just been talking about it. Let's, let's see what he had to say. The health secretary is 
always made clear repeatedly and consistently that his door is always open uh, for talks. We want to be reasonable. We want to be constructive. That's the way that the government has gone about this. Uh, we've got enormous gratitude for all our public sector workers for the job they do. I know things are difficult right now. That's why the government is providing lots of support for people, particularly uh, with energy bills. And it's why the government accepted in full the recommendations of an independent pay review body about what appropriate and fair pay levels were. But we will always have our door open and always be willing to sit down and be reasonable and constructive. So the door's always open, John. Yeah, I think if you look at the last couple of weeks, I mean, Rishi Sunak says they've been reasonable and constructive. I don't think it really appears they have. I mean, they say the door's always open to anything other than talks about the one thing that will get this done, which is some sort of compromise on pay. And I think the problem for the government is they just dusted off the playbook of how do you deal with strikes? They're just kind of using the same tactics they'd have done if this was a rail strike or anything else. And it's just not working out. You look at yesterday, the strike day, that should have been a day when public opinion might have changed. People thought, oh, hang on a minute, should nurses be doing this? Are people's lives been put at risk and the thing you got was Tory MPs coming out and speaking on behalf of the nurses saying that the government needed to increase that offer and you heard that from Jake Berry earlier on your programme and I think things really aren't going the government's way on this you know you saw the chief nurse out there earlier this week she sent a letter saying she was disappointed in the RCN she didn't think they were doing the right thing that was obviously leaked to the times and then we saw her out there yesterday on the picket line saying she supported nurses so yeah, I think that public opinion really isn't turning the way the government hoped. And I think that a lot of people will think, well, what are they doing to sort this out? We've got a situation where nurses are out on strike in their biggest strikes in history. And the government isn't being reasonable and constructive. It's just saying, oh, well, it's not our problem. We're not going to do anything about it. Uh, Melanie, how's this played out in, in Scotland, where the Scottish government did do a deal and the, the, the nurses haven't gone on strike in Scotland? Well, I think Nicola Sturgeon played it much more cleverly, didn't she? She, she um, as Jake Berry suggested to you a little bit earlier, that she compromised early, and 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 seven point five percent is is what they seem to have settled on, and it's effectively um, damped down any any action like this. Um, and I think that has it, it's a people pleaser, and you've got to remember you're dealing with the natural the the, the national religion here. Uh, it's not like train drivers. Very, very different. Yeah, I thought uh, nurses. It was quite striking yeah. speaking to Jake Berry, where he basically said people like nurses more than they like train drivers. I mean, essentially, that's what uh, he was saying. D- uh, absolutely, and it, it is. It's that sort of. It, it, there is something very exceptional about the, the, the case for nurses, and and um, everybody knows a nurse. Everyone's got one in their family or knows someone who, you know. It, 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 they all know how tough their job is at the moment and they all know that morale is rock bottom and that there are one in 10, one in one, 10 and one in nine jobs uh, unfilled. So it's, you know, they, they're on, they're on, they're in a no win situation. Again. And I think getting away from the intricacies of what exact percentage should be offered by the government and how on earth should they kind of get around the table and do this deal. It just feeds into this general feeling that I think a lot of people have that things aren't working in this country and something is going wrong. And it might be the strikes, it might be 
or number of things, people's mortgages going up. It's just this general feeling of this government that something isn't quite working and things are slightly falling, falling apart. And I think that that is the dangerous thing for the government, that a lot of people won't be reading the exact details of this, but they will just think, hmm, hang on a bit, something's going wrong here. And it was interesting in these, uh, Rishi Sinat did an interview in The Spectator this week, where he was like really laying on, I'm tough, I'll make the tough decisions, I'm steely, I won't be knocked around. And you sort of think, well, you're not going to get any credit for that if people think you're essentially being stubborn and not reacting to the events and, and dealing with the problems that are around you. Yeah. And, 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 so sorry, yeah. go on, Melanie. And, oh, well, and, and messing with our, one, our national treasures, uh, yeah. you know, yeah. I think this... Also, obviously, out of the talking about dusting off the playbook, this idea that you can use strikes as a way to kind of bash Labour over the head. There's a real danger this week that PMQs, it was like Keir Starmer appeared on the side of the nurses and Rishi Sunak appeared on the other side. And you can't say that this is all Labour's fault, da 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 da, nightmare before Christmas. La Labour's nightmare before Christmas is one of the most visible things I've heard at PMQs for a long time. And you, you can't say that. They will also accuse Labour Party of sitting on the fence and yeah. also say, Keir Starmer, you need to ring up your union paymasters, even though the RCN isn't a paymaster of the Labour Party, isn't affiliated to the paymaster. Keir Starmer, you're the one to sort this out. I mean, these arguments are just pathetic. However, uh, Rishi Sunak asked Keir Starmer, and it's obviously not the job of asking Keir Starmer the questions, but he asked Keir Starmer, what would you would you give Labour? Labour aren't promising a 19% pay rise either. No, but I don't think anyone thinks they're going to get a 19% pay rise. Do you, yeah. do you think that that's because the RCN, if the RCN overplayed this? If they'd said 10% match inflation, do you think that would have been more realistic and we, they wouldn't have ended up going on strike? I mean, possibly, but it's clearly an opening gambit yeah. in a negotiation. You speak to a lot of people on the trade union side, all of them think, well, clearly the nurses aren't going to get 19%, but they do think there is some sort of deal to be done. And as you were talking about with Mel about um, Scotland, you know, the offer in Scotland, I think it was an average of, is it around 7.5% yeah. and 10% yeah, for the lowest paid nurses. Clearly, the answer to this isn't going to be giving nurses some sort of 19% pay rise. The RCN accept this. You know, Pat Cullen, the General Secretary of the RCN, was suggesting... It's an opening gambit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They want to do a deal. <laughs> the RCN don't want to be on strike forever. They yeah. want to get some kind of way out of this. Uh, let's move on. Uh, but it's sort of in the same area. Melanie, in Scotland, you had your budget day yesterday. I'm not, sorry, I'm not holding you fully responsible for everything that happens in, in Scotland, Melanie. Uh, <laughs> uh, with with uh, Nicola Sturgeon putting up uh, higher taxes for top earners. How's it gone down? Well, I think there is a certain accept There's a certain realism, I think, in Scotland that that we have a lot. We do get a lot for our, um, our, uh, a lot of public services up here. You know, we have free care for the elderly. We have free prescriptions. We have, uh, to some extent, free university loans. Um, you know, the, the, there's going to be more generous... Apparently, there's going to be more generous welfare payments under the new um, uh, welfare system which Scotland is setting up. You know, I, it, the public aren't stupid. And, and I think a lot of... A lot of People do realise that we we need to pay, pay a bit more tax. So she, they're gambling on this being acceptable. They've got up one one p up, um, you know, forty one to forty two pence in the pound. It does mean we're the highest tax part of the UK. Um, I think the real problem is uh, that there aren't enough people to pay it. You know, the, the Scotland doesn't have a vast majority of. Um, middle and certainly high income t uh, taxpayers, and I think the Institute of Fiscal Studies have said that you know that the, the higher rate 
the high rate uh, will earn about uh, £3 million, which will feed the NHS for about 48 hours. So it's, you know, it's not like we have, we don't have lots of Russian yeah. oligarchs and things to uh, uh, people to pay massive amounts of, of tax out here. So yeah, the uh, both the higher and the top rates of tax will increase by 1p each. So uh, the higher rate goes up to 42p. Uh, top rate goes up to 57p, but uh, the tax changes are forecast to bring in only an extra 129 million. Imagine if, yeah. imagine if um, um, John, if, if Jeremy Hunt stood up and put 2p on income tax in England, everyone would lose their minds, wouldn't they? Yeah, and one of the things that's quite interesting about this is that it's another party breaking its promises on taxes. And we have a go at the Tories saying that they made all these triple lock tax promises back in the ancient days of 2019. But this is the SNP breaking promises it made in 2021. This isn't promises that were made before COVID. Obviously, it was before the war in Ukraine. But in one of the early pages of the SNP manifesto at the Scottish Parliament elections last year, it was quite clear saying they would freeze tax, tax rates and freeze tax thresholds. And they're doing neither of those at this budget. Uh, we did ask the uh, Scottish government to come on today, but um, no one was available apparently. So, but, uh, but as as we know, Melanie is here to represent all of Scotland <laughs> on all uh, on all matters. John, talk us through this gripping, exciting by-election that happened yesterday. Yes, this is the by-election that took place. Oh, don't even ask me to remember the place. It's, it's, it's an F and a U. It's Stretson and Ermston, is it? Stretford and Ermston, very Thank good. You. Help me out here. Uh, it's in great... a, what, I'll give you half a point for that. <laughs> it's in Greater Manchester. Kate Green was the MP there. She's going off to be Deputy Mayor of Manchester for something. Andy Burnham. Yep. And so there was the election there John yesterday. John Stevens from the Daily Mirror, everybody. <laughs> I'll have a job by the end of this. Anyway, <laughs> Labour did a lot better. It was a, clearly a safe seat before for Labour. They've piled on more votes. But Sir John Curtis, who knows a lot more about elections than me, has said that if that was a swing across the country, it wouldn't be enough to bring about a Labour majority. That's interesting. It was about 10 11%, wasn't it, from Labour to, uh, from Tories to Labour? However, in Labour safe seats, you don't quite have the same yeah. room to pile on as many votes. So it was less of a swing, around 10% there, with less of a swing than we had in Chester, where it was 14%. But Labour don't really need to gain more votes in these seats it's those marginal seats where they need to pile on the votes you know you just there's no point having huge majorities in certain parts of the country you need to start picking up votes all over the place it was also minus six i think we should point that out <laughs> well you think that might have affected turnout in a in yes. a, a, a foregone yeah. conclusion by election Melanie. come yes, on it's democracy you <laughs> I do think that should be factored in to the to the uh, the twenty six percent turnout. Uh, well, let's speak. So that was uh, the by election that happened uh, yesterday. Let's speak to the victor in a by election that happened a year. Yeah, it's exactly a year ago today. Uh, we can speak to Helen Morgan, who was uh, who won the North Shropshire seat vacated. I think it's probably the right word by uh, Owen Patterson. Uh, won it for the Lib Dems. Morning, Helen. Good morning. I hope you can hear me. Yes, we can. We can hear you loud and clear. So, uh, what's it what's it been like being an MP for it, uh, having won unexpectedly? If that's if that's fair. Yeah. An MP. Obviously, I'd been in a in a a seat that no one had expected to take from the Tories at all. So uh, I hadn't 
really thought about what it might be like until about five days before the by-election. But it's been, you know, a tumultuous time, hasn't it? I think Angela Eagle said on Wednesday that we've had five education secretaries, four chancellors and three prime ministers since uh, since I was elected. So it, it's been, I think, probably not typical. Um, <laughs> and I've been, uh, you know, inundated with with casework because, the, you know, things are tough on the, on the ground for people living their everyday lives in terms of healthcare, cost of living, it's all, it's all having an impact. What's the weirdest thing that you found becoming an MP, going into the House of Commons? So the House of Commons chamber is much smaller than you expect it to be. I think that's the, the most striking thing when you go in. I'm sure um, people have visited it and, and, and realised that. So it was much smaller than I expected it to be. I think the weirdest thing for me is Prime Minister's questions. I don't enjoy it. Um, I find the, the theatrics a bit silly and I would rather that they sort of got down to business and discussed how they're going to sort out this mess rather than just kind of all cheered and jeered at each other. Do you, have, you, have you asked, have you had a question at PMQs yet? Yes. So actually on my first day, I asked a question just after PMQs in a, in a statement about health services. I asked a question about ambulances and then I had a, I had a PMQ on Liz Truss's first PMQs as well. Wow. So, uh, and I asked about ambulances of that as well because obviously that's our burning issue here in, here in Shropshire. I mean, it is quite nerve-wracking because you have got a full house and, and people ready to sort of take you apart if they if they don't like it. So, uh, is yeah. it is it more difficult being a Lib Dem down the Lib Dem end and you haven't got masses of people around you to make noise? Um, no, I don't think so. I think if you ask a sensible question, most people on the opposite opposition benches are behind you, actually. Um, so no, I don't think that does make too much of a difference. And as a Lib Dem team, we are quite a good team. We do tend to support each other pretty well. So um, no, I, I don't find that that more problematic. I don't think. When you stood up and asked Liz Truss a question at PMQs, did you did you think she won't be there in six weeks? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, that was before the mini budget, so uh, I don't think I did think that at the time. I, I was worried. I think about what was to come. I think anybody um, with any sort of broader understanding of what's going on in the country who'd read the papers could probably see that that mini budget was going to be problematic so I thought we were going to have a rough time I, I won't pretend that I thought she was going to be gone within six weeks now <laughs> Melanie have you uh you you've ever thought about becoming an MP oh heavens no <laughs> oh no I'm 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 I'd be far too terrified uh, I I I couldn't I couldn't cope with the sort of conflict no I, no no I'm I yeah no terrifying terrifying I don't know how you do it what about you, John? Well, sometimes. I mean, I quite like the attention of it. There's many bits I wouldn't like, maybe the scrutiny, but, um, you know. But at least if you were MP, you wouldn't have John Stevens digging around in your in your business. Exactly. I mean, if there was a clamouring of people around the country wanting me to represent them, then how could I refuse? <laughs> if the ball were to come loose yeah, the scrum it. or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, then maybe you do it. Um, uh, and, and how's it been uh, in the last twelve months? Just sort of working out how how Parliament works because there's so many sort of weird rules, pink ribbons on on coat hangers, and you can sit there and you can't sit there. Um, how's how's sort of navigating all that been, Helen? That's that's quite quite tough actually because you get a handbook on your first day and that's pretty much your induction. Um, and so you're reliant on your colleagues to sort of tell you when to stand up and sit down to start off with, you know. And they, and I have to say, my Lib Dem colleagues have been brilliant. You know, they'll they'll all lean forward in a hurried way and go stand up now. <laughs> um, it does take a little bit of getting used to it. Some of it's very archaic. And I think, um, you, you know, my reflection on that would be the tradition's lovely and it's part of our identity, and we certainly shouldn't be looking to get rid of all of it. But 
some of it is very um, archaic and you know interferes with the smooth running of government. I mean, I find the voting situation ridiculous, where it takes you hours and hours to vote a few times. Um, but it does take a little bit of learning your way around. I think I think I'm there now, but uh, you need you need people on your side to tell you what to do and when. Had a really good speech. Lib Dem MP had a mug there, MP for North uh, Shropshire. Parliament is weird, isn't it, John? Oh, it's like totally weird. We've got um, a new colleague starting last week and was showing her around. I'm just remembering when I first joined the lobby and was lucky enough to sit next to you. We did. The... We sat next to get each other, didn't we? It was nice. <laughs> um, but I just thought, what on earth is this weird place? And there are so many odd things. I mean, Parliament's weird enough. The lobby is weird enough. Everything. You know, I'd gone from being a general news reporter where it's like dog eat dog, super competitive and... I don't know, uh, different tales <laughs> on the road. And then you come to Parliament where it's a lot more collegiate. And I just thought, why on earth are people so close to each other? And now I can see the reasons why. And I think it actually does work quite well. But when I came in, it was a bit of a culture shock. Yeah, that is, it is a bit weird. Let's talk about the snow. Everyone's moaning about the snow, Melanie. Well, yeah, it's it's it, newspapers are moaning about the snow. But I don't, <laughs> well, it's because it snowed I, in London, which, as we all know, is the most important of snows. Uh, yeah, well, it's been about an inch or something. Yeah, if half that, an inch. if that, yeah, that ground, ground the country to a standstill. I mean, London, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, you, if you were in Shetland right now, where there's no electricity, yeah, amazing, yeah, and there's sort of about two feet of snow, and and uh, you know. That might be a bit serious, but you know the the, the snow is gorgeous. It's it's you know it, there is a magic and a beauty. There's something incomparably wonderful about snow, and and you know we'll miss it when it's gone. Future generations won't may not see snow. So I think we should all stop being so negative about it and and um, uh, stop work, go out and play. I, I think bring out our think inner I'm... child. <laughs> I think my role is sort of ringmaster. I'm supposed to get you to be very anti-snow, John, to sort of stoke some conflict. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, my John, what do you make about snow? <laughs> I mean, I grew up in Cornwall where we never really got snow because yeah. it's slightly warmer. And so, I mean, at the moment... I, All I, electricity, of course. No, of course. <laughs> Stereotyping So I, I apologise to the people of Cornwall. Report you to Ofcom. <laughs> when I look at the back of my house, there's a part behind where there is still quite a lot of snow. I mean, the problem with snow is, it's all fine, it's nice. It's the slippy pavements. And, you know... You <laughs> Have don't... you got over? Not this time. I mean, now I'm getting used to walking a dog that wants to kind of, like, yank you over every time you get to a slippery bit. But, yeah, that's obviously... Snow's all lovely. Kind of melty ice, not so good. Yeah, no, I, slipped you, over, I slipped over on the snowboards and broke my wrist. Uh, and didn't I thought I'd be all right? I mean, it was just, just just shake it off and be You've fine. You've got a history of these sort of injuries. Yes, Mark, we don't. Which need is to... very unstable on your feet. <laughs> You've just got the wrong footwear on. I've, I've got. I did have the. You're absolutely right, man. I did have the wrong foot. Although um, the the other incident that John's uh, talking about was at a party conference where it wasn't oh. the, it wasn't the footwear. I think I think I, I think oh, I, all the snow. Yeah, all the snow. I think it may have been that I'd, I'd had a drink and we found ourselves in a busy sort of dual carriageway and in trying to climb over a. Um, like at some railings to get off the road. I <laughs> fell over, broke my wrist, uh, went for dinner with a cabinet minister where I tried to self-medicate with wine, ended up going to A&E. <laughs> but that, that's a story for another day. Uh, Melanie Reed, uh, John Stevens, Merry Christmas to you both. Thank you for that. And to, and to you. Go and enjoy the snow. 
columnist panel there with uh, John Stevens from the Daily Mirror and Melanie Reed from the Times. Of course, you can read Melanie in the Times every Saturday, where you can also find my column. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, it's PMQ's Unpacked from 1972. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com wondersuite. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. And it's a very special PMQ's Unpacked on a Friday. We're going all the way back to 1972, the House of Commons 50 years ago. It was the day the number of people out of work rose rose above 1 million for the first time since the 1930s. It caused uproar in the House of Commons. Edward Heath was the Prime Minister. The headline on the front page of the Times on the 20th of January said, Sitting suspended. Mr. Heath booed in Labour uproar on jobless. Censure debate on Monday. So the House of Commons course wasn't broadcast until later in the decade. So we've recreated the action with the help of Kieran Hodgson, brilliant actor and impressionist. Let's go back to 1972. Order, order. I call Matt Chorley and Patrick Maguire. Yes, welcome to 1972. Patrick Maguire, Times Red Box editor, is here. Good morning. Good morning, Patrick. Good to see you. Good to see you. So we've got Edward Heath, the Prime Minister, up in the House of Commons. Howard Wilson, obviously leader of the opposition. Not quite yet in the winter of discontent, but there's a, uh, it was probably at the start of a long period of industrial unrest. Yes, definitely. Look, and this is the this is really the germ of uh, the uh, industrial unrest later in the decade. And we're on the cusp of a really, really difficult period for Edward Heath, who just months after, uh, just months after this, Anthony Barber, his chancellor, launches the doomed dash for growth. Um, and, uh, you know, this, we're seeing Ed, Edward Heath on the, on, the, on the cusp of a series of very, very damaging U-turns and economic policy that ultimately proves even more disastrous than the subject they're talking about today. The, and, the, and obviously, we, everyone became briefly an expert in Barber uh, around the time of Kwasi Kwarteng's exactly. uh, mini-budget and, uh, and how that, that didn't necessarily work out. So the breaking news on this day in January 1972 is the number of unemployed people in the UK stands at 1.25 million. Many of the redundancies came from big manufacturers in decline and struggling to become more uh, efficient, like British Steel, GEC, ICI, at all closed factories. The Port of Authority of London had laid off thousands of workers. So let's go back to January 1972. Edward Heath appears in the chamber during defence questions. The Minister of Defence, uh, Robert Alexander Lindsay, known as Lord Balneal, is answering questions about the cost of transferring horses from Malta. 
this makes sense because basically the month before, Edward Heath had withdrawn British forces from Malta after 130 years and there's lots of concern about the horses coming home. So let's go to the House of Commons. This is Lord Banyol at the dispatch box and then you'll hear the Labour MP Arthur Lewis questioning him. Some 1,900 families were returned to the United Kingdom last week. Over half the families decided to make their own accommodation arrangements. Nearly all the rest were accommodated in officially provided quarters. Only a very small number had to be put in temporary accommodation, such as hostels. All servicemen in Malta have been allowed advances of pay to clear higher purchase debts, an increase in their baggage entitlement, free freight of their cars to the United Kingdom, and compensation within defined limits for unavoidable losses on the sale of goods in Malta. Will the Minister of State for Defence give details of the cost to the Exchequer of removing polo horses from Malta? Who owned these horses and why time and money was expended on this in preference to the shipment of personal and family belongings of the other ranks serving in Malta? The horses owned by the combined order, order, order. Honourable members must realise that they are... Let's just jump in there, uh, Patrick. Slightly surreal scene. Uh, One minute talking about the price of horses or the transport of horses. Ted Heath comes into the chamber and all hell breaks out. Yes, and it just goes to show, um, you know, how... You know, you and I have both been there many a time when um, the session before PMQs is very, very often a dull, quite technical discussion. Uh, You know, it's often Scotland question or Northern Ireland question, so even uh, more technical uh, nowadays. And then it's that moment when the Prime Minister walks through the door that the attention of the chamber uh, really turns to them and the mood and the atmosphere uh, turns on a sixpence. And you get a sense uh, there uh, of just just how tense and just how totemic one million unemployment is to the room. And, you know, this is a generation of MPs, by the way, who uh, whose formative years have spent in the Depression. That's certainly true of both Heath and Wilson, whose fathers are both unemployed in the 30s. So it's very much a moment, uh, and you can see that from the emotive response, uh, where people fear that Britain has gone back to the bad old days and are reacting accordingly. Yeah, so about 30, according to the Times report at the time, uh, 30 MPs leapt to their feet, start calling for Heath to resign. The Speaker, Selwyn Lloyd, starts calling for order. Lord Banyol has tried to continue, while the Labour MP, Eric Heffer, then pops up and tries to interrupt the whole thing with a point of order. Let's go back order. to the comments. Lord Balneal, on a point of order, I have been asked to reply to question number 27 by the Honourable Member for West Ham North. On a point of order, the horses owned by the... Order, Mr Heffer, point of order. On a point of order... Has the Prime Minister in any way notified you, Mr Speaker, that he intends to come to the House today to make a statement that he intends to resign as a result of today's unemployment? So Eric Heffer calling for the Prime Minister to resign. Lord Balneal. <laughs> the spe- Speaker says no. Let's go back to talk about horses. Resign, resign. The horses owned by the Combined Services Saddle Club in Malta are being transferred to the Army Saddle Club. Order. Still talking, still trying to plough on talking about horses. Now, at some point during these exchanges, uh, we we don't know exactly when because Hansard doesn't uh, record it, but the Labour MP, Dennis Skinner, crosses the floor of the House. 
And he's now standing in front of Edward Heath and shouting angrily at him. And obviously, Dennis Skinner will be familiar to lots of people, Patrick. Uh, but he was, a, he was a young firebrand rather than an old firebrand back then. He, he was a young firebrand. Similarly, Eric Heffer, uh, listeners with long memories may remember, he was uh, one of the Labour MPs later, um, who got caught up with a militant tendency, was a real uh, ally of Tony Benn and, and Jeremy Corbyn in, in that period, a real sort of uh, godfather of, of Labour's hard left. Um, and so you're seeing, uh, you know, as, as now... Uh, it is the people on the ideological fringes of Parliament who are often, in these moments, most prepared to uh, do away with propriety. And, um, well, not quite propriety, etiquette is As a better word. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So let's go back to the House of Commons. Then. This, reminder, this is from January 1972. Unemployment had hit uh, over a million for the first time since the 1930s. All hell breaks loose when Ted Heath comes in. Lord Banyol, though, is still at the dispatch box, still valiantly tried to carry on while being questioned about horses coming back from Malta by Labour MP Arthur Lewis. This is question time and it is quite wrong to try order. It is quite wrong to try to prevent a minister answering a question that he has been asked. Lord Balneal, on a point of order, has the Prime Minister notified you, Mr Speaker, that he intends coming to the House today to make a statement about unemployment? Order. I have already ruled that that is not a point of order. The answer to question number 27 is as follows. The horses owned by the Combined <laughs> Services Saddle Club... This is incredible, in Patrick, just this atmosphere in the House of Commons. All hell breaking loose, but Lord Banyol still just... He's still persisting, yeah, yeah. ...after it had been loaded with all baggage available for shipment at that time. No extra cost was involved. There's like echoes of uh, um, that bloke bringing his cats and dogs back from Afghanistan. Does not the minister think it's scandalous to spend any money at all? What was his name? Bringing polo horses back to this Penfarthing. Penfarthing, there we are. Over one million unemployed. Men who are prevented from obtaining work because the government refused to take action to ensure that these workers can get employment. Is it not scandalous? that money should be spent for this purpose when the only thing the government can boast of is having achieved one million unemployed. So fi finally, some, yeah, I appreciate that the unemployed being shoehorned into proceedings. Answer, but I pointed out that no extra cost was involved. There must have been some cost. The cost of forage for the animals was met by a non-government organisation. <laughs> The grooming and care of the horses was met by volunteers who gave right. up their leave for this purpose. There was no market for the horses in Malta, and had they been left in Malta, it would have been necessary for them to have been shot. Well, we, d we, we certainly don't want that, uh, Patrick. I don't know about, I don't know about f flogging a dead horse seems to be what Lord Badger's uh, doing. Just um, still persisting with talking about the horses. Still persisting. And also, this is always a problem in the Commons Chamber when the attention is not on the Minister at the yeah. dispatch box and the, and the dull and often dull and worthy subjects they're talking about. If the House's attention is focused on something else... And, um, you know, it's sort of like a murmuration of starlings, isn't it, when MPs are sort of all focused on one thing, it's impossible for the Speaker to control them. And you're already hearing that from Selwyn Lloyd. He's really struggling to keep them uh, in check. Right, so that, that's now the end of defence questions. So we won't hear any more about the horses. So now we come to Prime Minister's questions. Ted Heath at the dispatch box. Uh, the first question you'll hear, uh, sorry, the first voice you'll hear is the Speaker Selwyn Lloyd. Order, order. Questions for the Prime Minister. Question one. 
Mr. Cranley Onslow asked the Prime Minister whether he will seek to have an official meeting with the Prime Ministers of Norway, Denmark and ERA. Question 2. Mr. Philip Whitehead asked the Prime Minister what plans he has for an official meeting with Mr. Bertelli, Prime Minister of Norway. So this Prime is back Minister, in the days when Mr. the Prime Minister would know what the questions were in advance. Out! Out! Order! This is question time and the Prime Minister should be allowed to answer the question. He's out. He's out. It's absolutely all kicking off in the House of Commons. Question one and two together. That's Ted Heath trying to speak. On order, I hope the House realises the position in which this puts me. Get him back on his boat. <laughs> Get him back on his boat. I shall have to suspend the sitting. Ted Heath, a big sailor. He's out. He's out. Order. The sole effect of a suspension would be that the Prime Minister would not be able to be questioned today. On a point of order. That's the Labour MP Norman Atkinson. Down, sit down, sit down. Order, order. I ask honourable members to think over whether they want to prevent the Prime Minister being questioned. Mr Speaker. Out, out, out. You get the feeling the Speaker Selwyn Lloyd has completely lost control at this point, Patrick. Definitely. And now he's suspended the sitting. He's pulled the plug altogether. It doesn't, I mean, that happens very, very rarely, Patrick. It happens really rarely. Actually, I've been in the chamber once when it's happened, and that was because there was a water leak. Um, <laughs> that was a couple of years ago. But, but usually it happens um, either... Um, because there is a, there's consensus that business should be stopped. For instance, when David Cameron's son Ivan died, they suspended business during uh, Prime Minister's questions. Um, a, a few years earlier, do you remember when the hunting protesters stormed yeah, course, the yeah, yeah. stormed the floor of the Commons? Um, for instance, when the bomb that killed Airy Neve, a big ally of Margaret Thatcher, went off obviously in the precincts of the palace, they suspended the sittings to investigate the cause of the explosion. So it's usually a sign that something has gone really, really wrong. Uh, somewhere in Westminster, or that um, you know, there's a need for the normal business to be suspended. For instance, seventh of July, two thousand five, yeah. terrorist attacks in London. Um, so it's not the norm at but all. Normally, it's within the control of the prime minister, exactly, or the government, because they decide. You know, we're not yeah. going to do that session. We're not going to move that debate, exactly. or whatever. Rather than because the speaker has basically lost control. Yes, yes, <coughs> and, and and look, that 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 makes it rare. And it also reminds us just how emotive and. Uh, explosive the issue at hand is uh, because you know we hear a million unemployed now uh, and we you know it sounds normal but the consensus in British politics for decades previously was that mass unemployment was the thing that ought to be avoided hence the sort of system of industrial democracy um, you know the relations between government and the unions that broke down in the ensuing decade um, there was a real belief that after the depression where uh, Ted Heath and um, Harold Wilson's political consciences were formed that they couldn't countenance high unemployment. So there is, there is no surprise that particularly you're hearing Labour MPs absolutely furious here. Uh, yeah, and uh, I mean, we should point out, unemployment now is at 1.247. So it's almost exactly uh, the same as what it was uh, which caused all this up for. And also there's far more people in the country. Uh, right, so uh, the House of Commons is now suspended. This is a special PMQ's unpacked from 1972. January 1972, unemployment breached 1 million. Ted Heath arrived in the Commons for PMQs and there was such uproar 
that the sitting had to be suspended. We've recreated it all with the brilliant actor and impressionist Kieran Hodgson. Well, after the sitting uh, had resumed after the suspension, MPs started discussing the business of the House. And the first voice you'll hear now is the uh, Labour leader of the opposition, Harold Wilson. Answering him is the leader of the House, uh, Conservative Willie Whitelaw. On the assumption that the government have not done the decent thing and resigned by then, may I ask the Leader of the House to state the business intended for next week? Yes, sir. The business for next week will be as follows. Monday the 24th of January, there will be a debate on unemployment on an opposition note. Uh, so they're, they're not happy because they're not going to debate unemployment until the following week. That this House, recalling that the present administration was elected on the strength of a clear and specific pledge by the Prime Minister to reduce unemployment at a stroke, I will put it in the form of a question. On a point of order, Mr Speaker. <laughs> so, uh, he said there will be a, uh, a debate on unemployment, but not until the following week. Then lots of people started shouting out a uh, question. Uh, and then uh, the last voice you heard was Peter Tapsell, who, until uh, fairly recently, actually, was, was the father of the House, 2015. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, he was then uh, trying to ask a point of order. Let's go back to the comments. Is it not intolerable that the leader of the opposition, having wholly failed to show any leadership yeah. during the disgraceful yeah. exhibition by right honourable and honourable gentlemen opposite, order, nothing out of order is happening now. I will put it in the form of a question. Order. The Honourable Member appeared to be questioning the conduct of the Leader of the Opposition. All I can say is that nothing has happened on the business question which is out of order. Is the Right Honourable Gentleman aware? Patrick, this is a reminder of how the House of Commons goes from high drama to quite tedious, tedious procedural procedural matters really quickly. How can it be said that nothing out of order has happened? Order. The Honourable Member must not question my ruling. <laughs> it's all a bit John Burko, that, isn't it? Um, uh, so we look. Um, so we explain what happened. They've agreed there will be debate on unemployment. Howard Wilson has tried to make the point that Ted Heath came to office tried to, uh, promising to reduce unemployment. Instead, it's hit a million. Tory MPs, though, were barracking Howard Wilson, accusing him of reading his question, which... It used to be considered... God, imagine if that was still considered cardinal sin, people yeah, not reading off be, their eyes. It's a very so. bad uh, reading. Uh, oh, he's been out of order. Uh, let's go back. Let's hear one more time from Howard Wilson. I was asking the right honourable gentleman whether he was aware, if not, he is now, that the motion will say that this House, recalling that the present... This has been done many times in the House during business questions. I can quote precedents from right honourable and honourable gentlemen opposite. That this House, recalling that the present administration... Order. Demonstrations are apt to lead to counter-demonstrations. I ask the House to settle down and calm itself. On business, the House shall be told what is being tabled tonight that this House, recalling that the present administration... I'm not sure, I'm not sure Selwyn Lloyd's ever going to get back control of this House of Commons, Patrick. No, no, no. Well, no, uh, in short. And it's a reminder, as I was saying earlier, that when the attention of the House of Commons is diverted from... Uh, 
diverted from the the business at hand uh, it's very very difficult for a speaker uh, to control and it's also this is Edward Heath's premiership in a nutshell really it was a series of very damaging U-turns particularly on fundamental questions of the economy uh, be that unemployment be that growth be that um, stuff like I'm sure this will excite listeners at home statutory prices and incomes policy um, everything he promised he wouldn't do he ended up doing um, or ended up not doing um, and then it's no surprise you know given the unruliness in the commons it reminds you of the question he went to the country on in 74 who governs Britain and the answer it's already evident. It feels like it's not Edward Heath. He's the he's the victim of Harold Macmillan's events, dear boy events. Well, we can now speak to someone who was who was a member of uh, Ted Heath's uh, government back then. Uh, now Lord Howe, former cabinet minister, been listening in all the time. And uh, Lord Howe, you were a junior minister in the Department of Employment. So take us back to 1972. How yeah. big how big a deal was it? Uh, unemployment breaching that one million mark. Well, as, as your program. Uh, makes clear it, politically and at Westminster it was a huge deal um, but you, you know you, you've got to remember the, the, the much bigger context we were at the end of the Keynesian era in which it was absolutely essential to maintain full employment we got full employment in the war and we would never never going back to the horrors and the unemployment of the 1930s that's the sort of context in which we were operating uh, and it really frightened people all around not just the Labour Party, but a lot of Tories too, when we saw these figures of unemployment rising above a million. I mean, this is all before the digital age. The first oil shock lay just ahead. I was in my department that morning, I think about to be sent to Northern Ireland where chaos reigned. And unknown to us then, although there was an uproar, we were heading for much worse times. But that's the point, that unemployment was the thing. Keynes said it could not be cured by monetary squeezes and cutting wages that people would never accept a cut in real wages as just as we can see today as a matter of fact and therefore there had to be more public expenditure and so on and the Tories were not delivering so that was the sort of context and of course it's totally different to where we are today or where we were even 10 years five or ten years later from the uproar you're describing um, and take us back to the sort of the Commons Chamber of, of the of the early nineteen seventies. People today say, "Oh, it's terrible." The yard boo, punch and Judy politics, and the noise and farmyard noises that we get from MPs today. What was it? Li- Obviously, it wasn't televised. It wasn't even recorded, which is why we've had to recreate it. Um, uh, what was it like in the Commons Chamber? Well, there were some some great troopers on the Labour side. You mentioned Eric Heffer, a thoroughly decent man I knew, um, but of course he was sort of seen as a left wing. Tara, you mentioned Dennis Skinner walking across the chamber. Now, there was Tony Benn who was brilliant in the chamber needling the Tories. Uh, and there was this feeling that, that the great values of, that have been achieved by right? Keynesianism, by full employment, which we'd had since the war up, up to that from 1945 onwards, uh, would be, has been, was being transgressed and was a, a, an, an impossible and unacceptable level of unemployment had emerged and had somehow been engineered by the government. Of course, it wasn't much to do with the government. It was to do with much longer-term trends. We were heading towards the kind of service economy we have today with much more short-term work and much, a completely different employment pattern. But the world, that news hadn't got to Westminster. <laughs> so it was, it was rough. It was rough. And uh, the Labour Party was still fighting the great causes of the past, and um, events were actually taking us into a completely new future. The result was turbulence constantly in the chamber. 
And you, you were a junior minister under Ted Heath in the cabinet uh, under Margaret Thatcher. You were then a minister for David Cameron too. How did Ted Heath, because he clearly lost, con he, he couldn't command control in the House of Commons either. How, what was he like, Ted Heath, as a, as a dispatch box performer? Because unless you were an MP or a journalist lucky enough to sit in there, nobody mm. would have seen it. What was he like as a, as a sort of dispatch was, box yeah, performer? Afraid, the answer is he was a bit wooden. He was um, not a great orator. He was not like Michael Foote, who could sort of conjure the fabulous performance out of nothing. Um, he wasn't really a House of Commons man. Um, prime ministers aren't necessarily brilliant orators, or we have someone the Israeli obviously was going way back. But uh, no, he wasn't very good at the dispatch box. And this was a, the, the united phalanxes of Labour, cunningly led by Harold Wilson, who always knew very cleverly how to put the needle in. <laughs> and um, he wasn't a great performer. Who, who's the best person, do you think, you've seen at the dispatch box or from the Conservative side over the years? Oh, well, mixture. I mean, you know, you've got, you won't like me saying this, but there's no doubt that when Enoch Powell rose, the chamber filled. And uh, there were one or two others who were very, very considerable orators. But I think that that has to be said. We weren't, you know, there wasn't a brilliant oratorical display. Uh, the people who really amused and filled the chamber and were brilliant were obviously people like Tony Benn who could always produce an excellent speech and of course as I mentioned Michael Foote um, on the uh, Labour side uh, and uh, Patrick drew the parallels with uh, what happened months later the barber boom the pro-growth budget ended up stoking inflation um, any lessons from the 1970s that Rishi Sunak could learn the, today yes lot, lots and lots of lessons as you've got to You've got to set the context right um, for industrial, uh, for wage earners and salary earners. Uh, and I mean, Keynes was right that you know if you're suddenly asking people to take a huge cut in real wages um, or real salaries or real income, then you've got to start preparing for other means of security and support and dignity and safety for their survival. You can't just say, sorry, this is going to get most, and that's your lot. Uh, in 1940, Churchill could say, look, we're all going to have, have hardship. We're all going to reduce. This isn't the time for wage increases and so on. And nobody struck, except I think briefly the miners in the wall, but only very briefly. And everyone knew that we were in it together. I think now the context isn't re hasn't really been put at all well. Um, I would have advised this government to explain much more carefully that we're in an existential position. We've got a madman in Moscow threatening nuclear weapons. We've got food shortages. We've got submarines crawling the seas about to break all our cables. We've got inflation at a rate we haven't known for 30 years. And we've got food shortages ahead. I mean, this is a very, very dangerous time. And somehow all these, these wage increases that are causing such strikes and industrial strikes this morning and up to Christmas, they're understandable because people don't want to take a but they're out of time. This isn't the right moment. In the war, we were told, as I was a boy, we had to wait for the duration and take hardship in the meantime. Hasn't, none of that lesson seems to come through now at all. Everything is conducted in terms of new contracts, catching up, 19% pay increases. This is, this is a mad world, really. And a bit of lessening and explanation is needed. That's the lesson from this time we're talking about. Lord Howe, David Howe, really appreciate your time today. Former Minister in the Department of Employment back in 1972 and obviously Cabinet Minister later. David Howe, thanks very much for joining us. OK. And thank you to Patrick McGuire, Times Redbox uh, editor.
Uh, that was a lot of fun. PMQs on Pat from 1972. It certainly was. I look forward to our next Frayne's history. Yeah, if you, if you, in that fact, uh, that was uh, Big Boss Hussein who spotted that, the 1970, spotted the parallel. And it's taken us a while to, to pull it together. So if, you, if you've got an historic PMQs that you'd like us to recreate, get in touch in all the usual ways. And a massive thank you to uh, Kieran Hodgson for uh, his multitude of historical impressions. I thought the Wilson and the Heath were both brilliant. They're really, really good. Really, really good. I can't, I can't vouch for some of the others, but. Um, because I've never heard. Ha- Eric Heffer was good. Yeah, Eric Heffer, Heffer was, was good. good. Fabulous. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from? <laughs>